Well, good morning. I haven't been called a young man in a long time. Um, <clears throat> matter of fact, so in, in Oregon, so I'm, I'm, a, I'm a lifelong Oregon resident, and in Oregon, uh, <clears throat> when you, uh, I, I think it's when you're, when you're 65 years old, you can get a pioneer license, uh, your hunting and fishing license for the rest of your life. And I had somebody ask me recently if I had my pioneer license. And uh, I'm 44 for the record, so... <laughs> So Gary, thank you. <laughs> I'll I'll take it. <laughs> um, I got a call yesterday from a Pastor Brent. He's sick. Uh, called me yesterday late afternoon, saying, "Hey, I need you to fill in for me today." And in fairness, I think I'm the one that made him sick. So here here I am. Um, <laughs> so greetings from Lapine, and uh, I know you guys have been in Acts, but today we're going to be in uh, the book of First John. So if you have a Bible. Uh, go ahead and turn to First John chapter one, and we're going to look at uh, verses one through four. <clears throat> As many of you know, I'm, I'm sure, at least if you've been around here for any amount of time, uh, you know what's behind the name of the church, the door. Uh, John ten nine, Jesus refers to himself. Uh, as the door, and a couple of weeks ago in uh, in Lapine, David, Pastor David, preached uh, a sermon and unpacked that scripture, and he, he gave us four things that the door is, uh, and I just want to go over those very, very briefly. The door, uh, first and foremost, is a person. The door is Jesus Christ. Uh, the door is exclusive. Jesus claims of himself to be the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father except through him. Uh, the door is an entry. It's our entry uh, into the kingdom of God. And, and the door, uh, fourthly, is truth, right? And and is, is and the reason I, I, I want to set this up this way is that, that I want to ask the question. I'm, I have a very analytical mind, and so I like to ask the questions of what, where, why, how, who, when, you know, thing, things like that. Uh, and, and so naturally, my mind, uh, automatically, the, the question for me goes to, well, what, what's on the other side of the door? Like, if, if that's the door, if the door is a person, if the door is exclusive, uh, if the door is an entry point, if the door is truth, well, what, what happens when you walk through the door? What happens when you enter into the door and, and cross the threshold? And uh, John, in his first epistle, is going to answer at least some of those questions for us today. And so I want to ask uh, and attempt to answer uh, three questions. So I want to uh, answer the, ask the question, who is John talking about in this passage? Uh, what is John talking about in this passage? And why is he talking about it uh, in this passage? And so keep those questions in your mind. And so I'm going to ask those and attempt to answer them. But let's go ahead and read 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. It says this, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it and we testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ, and we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Who is John talking about? What is John talking about, and why is he talking about it? So first, who is John talking about? The first two verses that we just read. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, that life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. 
John is obviously talking about Jesus. But for a moment, let's look at John's gospel, the first chapter of John's gospel, uh, the first 18 verses. And we're going to quickly uh, just look at these first 18 verses of the gospel of John because it's going to give us a little bit better of an idea of who Jesus is. Right? Who is Jesus? In the beginning, John chapter 1 tells us that was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and He was in the beginning with God. And I don't know about your Bible, my Bible, the, the word, Word, has a capital W because it, it's talking about a person. In the beginning was Jesus, and Jesus was with God, and Jesus was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were made through Him, and through Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John, and he came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world, and he was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, he believed and believed in his name. He gave the right to become children of God who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. And the word, capital W, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth, John bore witness about him and cried out, This is he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace, for the law has, what the law has given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side, but he has made him known. And so what do we what do we learn from all of that those 18 verses in John's gospel? We learn that Jesus is eternal. We learn that he is the creator, we learn that he is the life. We learn that he is light, we learn that he was sent by the Father. We learn that he was rejected by his own creation. Yet we also learn that he's the justifier. And we learn that he's the giver of grace and and most of all we learn that Jesus can be known. God is not some pie-in-the-sky eternal being that, that we can't know, that we can't see, that we can't feel, that we can't hear. Back to our first John passage, John is saying that we have heard and we have seen with our eyes and we've looked upon and we've touched with our hands this person, Jesus Christ. And so John... John had a unique relationship with Jesus. If you ever read through the gospel account of John, he refers to himself time and time again as the disciple whom Jesus loved. And I have to chuckle at that just a little bit because John is referring to himself that way. And it's not that he didn't love the other disciples, but John had a special relationship with Jesus that was unique from the others. And so when John says that I've seen him, I've heard him, I've touched him, I've been in his presence, those things are true. John was face to face with Jesus Christ. And so when he tells us who he is, John is telling us from a place of knowing who God is in a way that is unlike the other gospel writers. 
And he reminds us that that God stepped into human flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. In the original language of the Bible, I'm no Greek scholar, far from it, but, but in the original language in the Bible, when it says that he dwelt among us, that, that, that word is tabernacle. He tabernacled among us. And, and if you have read through any of the Old Testament, you, you know that there was a tabernacle. The tabernacle in the Old Testament was the dwelling place of God. And people would have to go to the tabernacle at prescribed times and in prescribed ways. And they would have prescribed liturgies and in ways that they would worship God. But they would have to go to the place where God dwelt. What John is telling us is that, that God in human flesh, in the, in the person of Jesus Christ, came to us. And he dwelt among us. We, we didn't have to go to him. He came to us in human flesh. And this is the person that John is talking about. The life was made manifest and we've seen it and we testify to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. This is who Jesus is. So who is John talking about? He's not talking about some pie in the sky God that's out there. He's talking about Jesus Christ, God in human flesh and his own experience with Jesus. Second question, what is it that John is talking about? He goes on in 1 John 1, 3 to say, That which we have seen and heard we proclaim to you also, that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So what is it that John is talking about? He's talking about fellowship. John's talking about fellowship. So let me ask you another question. Hopefully I'm not asking you too many questions today. But, but what do you think of when, when I say fellowship? What, what does that mean to you? That's one of those Christian words that we throw around a lot. Had some good fellowship with a brother today. right? Went over to some people's house and we fellowshiped. Uh, we might refer to our church as the fellowship, right? What about... Maybe you come early to service so you can fellowship. Maybe you stay late after service so that you can fellowship. Maybe maybe you participate in things during the middle of the week. Maybe you go to a home fellowship group. Those things are all, all true that they are fellowship, but what really is fellowship in the biblical sense? What, what is fellowship in the biblical sense? There's a picture that we get in the second chapter of Acts, and you don't necessarily have to turn there. But at the end of the second chapter of Acts, the church had just been born. The day of Pentecost, maybe, maybe you know the story, the church had just been born. Peter, who had been less than impressive up to this point, preached a sermon to a whole bunch of people. And in an instant, 3,000 people were told came to faith in Christ. And in a moment, like there wasn't, there wasn't the church, and then people came to faith, and then there was the church, just in, in a moment. And there's this neat scene at the end of Acts chapter 2 where nobody really had to tell the church, like, here's how you be a church. Nobody had to tell them. They didn't say that we need to gather on Sunday mornings and maybe have some things for the kids and have these things throughout the week where you go to people's houses or you connect with one another. It seems that this just kind of naturally happened as a result of faith in Christ where where people came together. It says that they were devoted uh, to four things. They, They were devoted to the apostles' teaching, so they were devoted to the Word. They were devoted to fellowship, to breaking of bread, and prayers. And as a result of the devotion to these four things, we're told that awe came upon everyone. 
And we're also told that they began to share their things with one another. If somebody had need and somebody was able to meet the need, they would just do it. Nobody considered their possessions to be their own. So there was this kind of uncommon generosity that spread throughout the church as a result of their devotion um, to fellowship among other things. Day by day, it says that they attended the temple together and they were breaking bread in their homes. So they have their corporate gatherings like this. They have their smaller gatherings throughout the week. And it says that they received their food with glad and generous hearts. They praised God. And somehow they had favor, we're told, with God and with all of the people. And I don't know that that's necessarily prescriptive. The church hasn't always had favor with all of the people throughout all of time. right? Sometimes the church tends to ruffle some feathers of society. But in this moment, this was happening where the newly formed church had favor with, with people uh, and with God. And then it says that God added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Can, can you imagine that? What would we do if every day even one new person came to faith in Christ, let alone a bunch? And, and so we see this idea in Acts chapter 2 of fellowship. And the idea of this, this fellowship, it's a Greek word koinonia, And this word is not found anywhere in the gospel accounts. This is the first mention of of this this Greek word koinonia in the New Testament in Acts chapter 2. And the idea of koinonia is not time before and after church. The the idea of koinonia is is not necessarily having coffee with your buddy, uh, not necessarily hanging out in somebody's house once a week for a Bible study, although those things could all be inclusive of that, but it's so much more. Than that, This idea of fellowship that we see in the New Testament is lives connected to one another. Just as we saw people giving to one another as they had need, well, how, how do you know if somebody has a need if your life isn't connected to their life? They were able to give to one another because they shared life together. They had such relationship that drew them together that people instinctively knew, oh, my brother or sister over here, they, they have a need. And you know what? We have the ability to meet that need, so we're going to go ahead and and we're going to meet that need. Because they had fellowship in the biblical sense. They had lives that were connected together. They had a partnership that was kind of uncommon up to this point. And so what the day of Pentecost brought and the birth of the church brought was a new kind of fellowship that didn't previously exist before it. And it's important that we understand that. That the kind of fellowship that, that we have because of our allegiance to Christ and because of our, our connection to one another is unique. <clears throat> there, there are lots of clubs in the world. Maybe some of you are part of some civic clubs or organizations. Well, what is it that makes the church different? How is the church different from the Rotary Club? Rotary Club does a lot of good things in our community, in our society. What makes the church different? How is the church different from some of the animal clubs, the elks, the eagles, the moose, those clubs that are out there? The church is different than those. Those are all clubs that that do good things, right? They they give back to our society. They have their their regular meetings, weekly or monthly or however often, just like we, we have our regular meetings. But what is it that makes the church different? This kind of fellowship that we're talking about doesn't exist in any of those clubs. It doesn't exist because the only way that this kind of fellowship can exist is when we enter through the door, when we walk through the door. This this fellowship doesn't exist outside of the door. 
a relationship with Jesus Christ. And so what is John talking about here? He's talking about fellowship, but more than friendship, more than partnership, more than, than regular coffee dates or lunch dates, more than that. He's talking about lives that are connected together. Now, there are kind of two, two senses to this fellowship or two aspects to this fellowship. He says that he's telling us about Jesus so that we may have fellowship with us. And so we have this, this horizontal fellowship that's created. But the only way that this horizontal fellowship is created is when our vertical fellowship with the Father comes into being. You can't have one without the other. Maybe you've seen, I've seen this bumper sticker, maybe you've seen it before, maybe you've heard people say something to the effect that, I like Jesus, but his people not so much. And we have kind of rightfully earned that to some extent, right? Maybe some of us more than others. But but, but the idea is that, that it, it's me and Jesus. I don't, I, don't need, I don't need anybody else in my life. And even a cursory reading of the Bible would tell you that, that a Lone Ranger Christian is a pretty foreign concept to Scripture. You just don't see it. The Bible doesn't advocate for it. And so whether you like it or not, we're kind of stuck with each other. right? If, if we love God, then we love our brothers. And, and John would go on to say this in his epistle. We're not going to get to that portion of it today. But John would go on and draw a line in the sand and say the reality is this is that if you don't love your brothers and your sisters, then it's likely that you don't love Christ. And John is very black and white this way. He's not pulling any punches. He's not trying to, to, to not hurt anybody's feelings in saying this. But, but there's a reality that our vertical fellowship with the Father breeds a horizontal fellowship with one another. And our horizontal fellowship with one another is a result of our vertical fellowship with the Father. They are inseparable. And there's another reality to this as well, is that we need each other. Do you know that? Do you know that we need each other? I need you in my life, and you need me in your life, and this is God's grand plan. This isn't just a good idea. This is actually God's design for the church. It's God's design that we would be interdependent upon each other. And that, that goes against our kind of Western American sensibilities because, you know what, I, I, can, I don't need you. I can do anything I want. I can pull myself up by my own bootstraps. I don't need help from anybody. We conquered the West for crying out loud. <laughs> like, who, who do I need? Well, the, the Bible would say that, that you need, everybody in this room needs everybody else in this room. And there's probably people that aren't here that would be included in that statement as well. We, we all need each other. John is talking about Jesus Christ, God become flesh. He's talking about our fellowship vertically with the Father, our fellowship horizontally with one another. Think about it this way. The prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 32 Verses 38 and 41 says this. He says that, and this is God speaking, and he says, They shall be my people, and I will be their God, and I will give them one heart and one way, that they may fear me forever for their own good and for the good of their children after them. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. 
And I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me, and I will rejoice in doing them good, and I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and all my soul. This is God speaking through the prophet Jeremiah about doing a whole lot of good for humanity. Did you catch all the times that, that the word good was in there? God saying, I will do them good. All the times in here, God saying, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. That There's nowhere in here that God says, I'm going to do this if you do that. I'm going to be good to you if you're good to me. This also goes against our sensibilities because our human relationships are very transactional. You do for me, I'll do for you. If you don't do for me, I'm probably not going to do for you. Right? That's just kind of how we operate. That's how we operate in, in most of life. And here's God saying, I'm going to do all of these things for you, and there are no conditions. He doesn't say, I'm going to be good to you. I'm going to plant you here forever. I'm going to make an everlasting covenant. I'm not going to turn away. I'm going to put the fear of me in your heart. I'm going to rejoice in doing good as long as you're thankful for it or as long as you reciprocate. He's not saying that. Our fellowship with the Father is God doing a whole lot of good for us, most often in spite of us. Do you remember... In John's gospel, when he was talking about who Jesus was, that God stepped into human creation, and what happened? Humanity rejected him. Humanity rejected God in the flesh. Yet God is faithful to do what he says he's going to do. And here in Jeremiah, he tells us that he's going to do a whole lot of good for us. And it wasn't like when he said these words that he knew that Jesus was going to be, or that he didn't know that Jesus was going to be rejected and that caught him by surprise later. No. That's not how God works. The Apostle Paul would write to the Galatians in Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 to 7, that when the fullness of time had come, that God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons or as sons and daughters. And because you are sons and daughters, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, or crying, Daddy. So you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. And again, here's a whole lot of God doing for us without asking us to do for Him. And so why why would we reject that kind of fellowship with the Father if ultimately it's for our good? Romans chapter 8 tells us that if two things are true of you, that if you love God and if you're called according to his purpose, that everything is for your good. And that's not just a platitude that we throw out when somebody's having a bad day. It's far more than a platitude. This is, this is the truth of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that if you are his, if you've entered in and stepped across the threshold onto the other side of the door, Everything in your life is for your good. That doesn't mean everything is good, but everything works for good for those who love God and are called according to His purpose. This is the fellowship that we have with the Father. The Father wanting to do good for those who belong to Him. And so on your worst day imaginable, if you've crossed the threshold and stepped onto the other side of the door, that worst day imaginable, even though you probably can't see it in the moment, it's for your good. God is working for your good because that's who—that's what he said he would do. 
And it's because of that fellowship that we have with the Father that we have fellowship with one another. And as we see demonstrated in the early church, it really they were working for one another's good as well, weren't they? As they were sharing their possessions with one another and nobody considering what they had to be their own. That they were working for each other's good as a reflection of the Father who works for their good. Do you see how all this is connected? And so, <clears throat> another question. If Jesus is the basis of our fellowship, and if our fellowship is one another and with him, then what is the result of this fellowship? Like, where are we going with this? And so why is it that John is talking about this? First John chapter 1, verse 4, that we are writing these things to you that your joy may be complete. I'm not going to do this, but, but if I asked everybody to raise your hand if you wanted joy, every hand would go up. Every hand should go up. If your hand doesn't go up, we would look at you like you're, you're not thinking straight. Right? We, we all want to have joy, don't we? We all want to be happy. We all want to be fulfilled in life. And we spend a lot of effort and a lot of energy trying to find those things, don't we? We work careers, and I'm not going to ever stand up here and say that a career is a bad thing. If you have success in your career, good for you. But, but we work careers and we work ourselves to the bone just so we can be happy. Right? We, we, we amass things. Right? We buy houses, we buy cars, and again, not bad things. But, but we look to those things often to make us happy. We look to those things often as our sources of joy. To be able to stand around and say, well, look look what I've done. Look, look, look at all this. Look, look at, what I, look at the, the kingdom I've built for me. And, and we look to those things to find joy and fulfillment and happiness. And, and John tells us here quite simply that when we understand that our fellowship is with the Father, our fellowship is with one another because of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, that, that your joy will be complete. In other words, there's no greater joy to be found anywhere apart from knowing Christ. Yet we look for joy every other place because we, we, read, we read Scripture and we think this Christian life is hard. How can I find joy in doing hard things, right? Like we avoid hard things, don't we? But John tells us that our joy would be complete. And, and do you know? Do you know how how John? Do you know a little bit about his life? John was in exile, and church history tells us that they tried to kill him. They tried to boil him alive in oil. Can you imagine a worse way to die? Well, here's the thing: John didn't die. Can you imagine a worse way to not die? Like he had to live after that. And, and this is the guy that's writing that. Your joy is going to be complete by stepping across the threshold and entering into the door. Even though for him and for, for the early disciples, like they all died as martyrs. They all died difficult deaths because they wouldn't stop talking about Christ. The Apostle Paul. Have you read much about the Apostle Paul? He was somebody in the world before he came to know Christ. He had a reputation. He was a smart guy. He was respected. He was a persecutor of the church. He was feared by Christians. Right? If the Apostle Paul were alive today, we might fear that he would come in the door and, and drag some of us out of here to prison or even to death. That's who the Apostle Paul was. 
And he had an encounter one day with Jesus Christ. Acts chapter 9, if you want to read it later. And his life was forever changed from that moment forward. The Apostle Paul lived a life perhaps far more difficult than any of us will ever live. His practice is that he would go into a town and he would would go to the temple. He, He would go to church. He'd go to where all the religious people were. And he would preach the gospel to them and he would stir the pot and he'd make everybody mad. Sometimes they'd run him out of town. One time they took him outside of town and they stoned him to death. They threw rocks at him in an attempt to kill him. And he didn't, either either he died or, and, and, and they raised him from the dead or he didn't quite die. They just thought he was dead. Either way, but he, he gets up and he goes back into the town. And if I'm Paul's friend, if you're Paul's friend, you're probably going to say to him, Paul, tone it down a bit. Maybe when you go into a town, like don't don't show up to the church and make everybody mad. Maybe there's a more subtle way to approach this. But Paul and, and John and, and all of the early disciples, they just couldn't stop talking about who Christ was. And they all gave their lives in service to Christ because of the fellowship with the Father and the fellowship with one another. And so there's got to be something there. There's got to be something to that. John is telling us that our joy cannot be complete apart from knowing Christ, even if that means hard things ahead because we know Christ. I read an article just a few weeks ago that that Christianity is being considered, or or, uh, the Bible is being considered hate speech in England. There was a court ruling that came down, and and it has to do with uh, with gender and sexuality and that hot-button topic in our society. Actually, a court ruled that the Bible is hate speech because of that. Right? It's not going to get any easier to be a Christian tomorrow than it is today. It's going to probably be more difficult. And John reminds us that there's one way for our joy to be complete, and that's fellowship with the Father and fellowship with one another. And so let me put it this way, and I'll end with this. This is kind of a long quote, and I don't do long quotes often, but this is really good. And I pulled it from a commentary, and I forgot to attribute it, so I can't tell you who wrote it, but it's, this is not me. I'll tell you that much, but, but it's really good. And so, so the question that I'm going to end with is, so what's on the other side of the door? And, and this commentator speaks to this with regard to our passage in 1 John. And it says this, That essential good, that uncreated excellence which had been from the beginning, from eternity as equal with the Father and which at length appeared in human nature for the salvation of sinners, was the great subject concerning which the Apostle John spoke to his brethren. The apostles had seen him while they witnessed his wisdom and holiness, his miracles and love and mercy during some years, till they saw him crucified for sinners, and afterwards risen from the dead. They touched him, so to have full proof of his resurrection... This divine person, the word of life, the word of God, appeared in human nature that he might be the author and the giver of eternal life to all of mankind through the redemption of his blood and through the influence of his new creating spirit. The apostles declared what they had seen and heard that believers might share their comforts and everlasting advantages. They had free access to God the Father. They had a happy experience of the truth in their souls and they showed its excellence in their lives. This communion of believers with the Father and the Son is begun and kept up by the influences of the Holy Spirit. And here's what's on the other side of the door. 
The benefits that Christ bestows are not like the scantly possessions of the world, causing jealousness in others. But the joy and happiness of communion with God is all sufficient so that any number may partake of it and all who are warranted to say that truly their fellowship is with the Father will desire to lead others to partake of the same blessedness. So if all of this is true, and I say if not because I'm questioning it, but if in the logical sense, if it's true that Jesus is is God in human flesh, if it's true that because of our fellowship with him, we have fellowship with one another, and if it's true that those things lead to no greater joy than what can be found anywhere on the planet, if that's true, that those things are on the other side of the door, why would we not take as many people through the door as we possibly can? And here's my encouragement to you as we wrap up this morning. If you believe these things, if you're sitting here and you're lots of heads nodding today, if you're nodding your head and you're believing these things to be true, who is it that you know in, in your circles of influence, your family, your friends, your neighbors, your co-workers, people that you know, who, who is it that, that you need to grab by the hand and say, come walk through the door with me? Now, I understand it's not that easy, right? I know that. You all have people built into your lives that, that need to know this truth. And the Bible tells us that this is, again, not just a good idea, but it's actually God's plan, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, that he would make his appeal through us. Those who have been reconciled to God, who have experienced the privilege of reconciliation, have been given the duty or the mandate of the ministry of reconciliation. In other words, as one who has crossed the threshold and stepped into the door, you now have a, have a duty you have a responsibility because of who Jesus is and because of what he's done to grab others by the hand and say, come through the door with me. Let, me. let me tell you about who Jesus is and what he's done. And so I would challenge you, encourage you this morning to consider who in your life that, that you might begin praying for. Maybe you're already praying for them. Who, who is it that, that may, maybe you just haven't been bold enough to have that conversation with. We see at the birth of the church in the book of Acts, like the church just grew. The church was persecuted. It was hard for them. And somehow in the midst of persecution, the church didn't shrink. They didn't go hide in the trees or the bushes. The church actually grew. Persecution caused the church to proliferate. Because we have fellowship with the Father, because we have fellowship with one another, we, we, we now have the responsibility to help others to come into that same kind of fellowship that we have. It's like we have the cure for cancer, but we're just going to hang on to it and not tell anybody about it. That wouldn't make sense, right? Nobody would do that. And what we have is so much greater than, than a cure for cancer, is it not? Is it not? There's no greater joy in knowing Christ. There's no greater joy in the fellowship that we have with him, with one another. And there's no greater joy in the church than to proclaim the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Author Tim Keller says that the church is exclusive. But he says it's the most inclusive exclusivity that exists anywhere. 
It's exclusive in that the claims of the gospel are exclusive. There's one way. It's Jesus Christ. But that exclusive message is inclusive to any and all who would believe. And our job as Christians is much like that of the postman. Right? Put the mail in the box. Postman ever come and knocked on your door and said, "Hey, you might want to open this this envelope. It looks like it's time sensitive." No, just faithfully every day, right? What, what's the saying in, in rain and sleet and snow and wind? Like the, the post the postman always comes and delivers the message, right? Consider yourself the, the, the postmen and the postwomen for Jesus Christ. That our job is to faithfully deliver the message. Right? We can't control how people respond to the message. It's not our job. Our job is to faithfully faithfully deliver the message that he's given us as ministers of reconciliation. And that's not just for the people that get paid to do it. That's for everybody who professes faith in Christ. And so let me encourage you with that today, and let me pray for us. Father, we're thankful this morning. Thankful first and foremost for who you are and what you've done for us. Thankful that you loved us enough that you stepped into human flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. Thankful that you have done for us that which we could or would never do for ourselves, that you've redeemed us from bondage to sin, that you've reconciled the broken relationship that we had with you, and that you've done that not because of us, but in spite of us. And so, Father, today is maybe we hear this truth with fresh ears and we see it perhaps with fresh eyes. Pray that you would help us to consider who it is in our lives that that we might proclaim the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ to the coming days, the coming weeks. And we would boldly and audaciously pray because we know that you can do it, that you would add to our number even daily those who are coming to know you. That seems like a bold ask, but Father, we boldly ask it today. Not because we're trying to build a kingdom here on this earth, but because there are people that are lost and dying in our world, and if they don't know you, they're going to spend eternity apart from you. And so, Father, break our hearts for the things that break your heart. Give us the belief that we need that would cause us to be bold to proclaim the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ to people in our lives. But more than that, Father, we pray that you would save the lost, that you would redeem the broken, and that you'd use us in some way to accomplish that end. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.